The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. This week, we are discussing Chinese audit changes, vaccine wars, and UK tax cuts. Welcome back to The Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. China is opening its doors to greater scrutiny. In a new pact signed this week, Washington will be given powers to vet audit firms in China and Hong Kong. In theory, this could allow New York-listed Chinese companies worth a combined $1.5 trillion to skip delisting. But will China be comfortable with outsiders digging into their most profitable and strategic companies? Or is it more likely to encourage businesses to seek alternative arrangements? Meanwhile, it syringes at dawn as producers of two of the world's top COVID-19 vaccines prepare for legal battle. Moderna reckons Pfizer used some of its intellectual property to make the life-saving remedy. Given Pfizer estimates the jabs could generate over $30 billion in sales each year, it's a case worth defending. And Britain is having a particularly torrid time with inflation. City analysts reckon it could soar to 18% and ballooning energy bills could wipe many businesses out this winter. This makes it all the more bizarre that potential successors to Prime Minister Boris Johnson are mainly debating tax cuts. First, Jennifer Hughes chats to Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong about the unintended consequences of audit reform of US-listed Chinese companies. Then, Rob Siren beams in from New York to discuss vaccine wars. Lastly, Peter Tall Larson speaks to me and George Hay in London about the UK economy and how tax cuts may be hard to pull off. Hi, I'm Katrina Hamlin, and I'm here in Hong Kong with our editor, Pete Sweeney, and columnist, Jen Hughes. You've been covering the story of an estimated 1.5 trillion worth of Chinese companies listed in the US who are at risk of delisting. Jen, can you give us a bit of the backstory? Sure. Uh, This has been a long-running row. Basically, the US has been asking for the ability to inspect the audits of Chinese companies done in China. China has long said that those are the audit papers, the working papers of the auditors are state secrets. And so this has been a kind of impasse of some degree or other for the last 15 odd years it's been going on. Um, there's no inspections been done of a Chinese or Hong Kong auditor since 2010. Uh, this has become a bigger issue in recent years with more Chinese companies listed in the US. And what we've been working toward and what's just happened that Pete and I have been writing about is that we've got an agreement now that the PCAOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, can come to Hong Kong and ask for whatever audit papers from the mainland they want, and these will be supplied to them. At least that's what's meant to happen now. Okay, so is that the end of the story, or do you think there might be more to come? The first thing is, you know, the question on on paper, this looks like a big surrender from Beijing's part, which I think caught a lot of people off guard. I I personally was not taking this for granted at all. I don't think Chen was either um, that we were actually going to get to this point. So, I mean, as we know, it's been going on since roughly 2007. During that time, two things have happened. Wall Street has continued to make a lot of money off of Chinese companies tapping American capital markets, including some companies that are not in harmony with American political values. For example, there are some companies that like mine in the the province in the region of Xinjiang that are on there. Um, there are companies that were affiliated with the Chinese military. So on the US side, the government side, um, there was some displeasure 
that like, you know, as, as the confrontation with China intensified and democratic sentiment in the United States kind of hardened against China, that there are these companies able to tap American investors for these funds. Separately, there were these issues, which is not directly related to the auditing dispute, but there were these big high profile fraud cases. In 2011, there were tons of Chinese companies that got kicked off for fraud. And while the issue predates that, um, a lot of people at that point woke up and realized like, you know, not only can we not get any recourse from these assets, which are inside China, Chinese courts won't enforce judgments against Chinese assets. And also we can't even double check the papers, even though the auditors were ostensibly looked like American auditors, you know, like you have all the big four have these Chinese subsidiaries. And at that point, kind of a lot of ordinary people woke up and like, well, this is a, this could be a, you know, we really need to get China to start cooperating with us a bit more. So now we finally have, even after all this hostility, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, all this, the trade war, and all of a sudden Beijing has said, you know, okay, we're gonna we're gonna finally cooperate after all this long, and it looks on paper like everything that the PCAOB asked for. I mean, my question for Jen is like, how how seriously do you take it? Well, in ten years of covering this on and off, this is the most positive step. However, and there's a big however in all of this. It depends if the PCAOB inspectors in their hotel room or in their offices in Hong Kong, wherever they all get put, whether they do get everything. Now, there's differences between the way that the U.S. side has presented this. And the U.S. side says we get untrammeled access to whatever we ask for. The Chinese side hasn't disputed that, but what the CSRC said is that the papers that the U.S. regulator needs access to, and I'm quoting here, will be obtained by and transferred through the Chinese side. The Chinese side will also take part in and assist in the interviews. So if an auditor is called in to be asked about, hey, how do you guys do this? What should you do? There will be a Chinese regulator sitting in the room with the US regulator. Now, that's not to say that will stop cooperation, but it certainly means that perhaps, well, previously, papers that the US regulators have asked for were redacted or withheld. This seems different, but what might happen is that the papers don't contain the information that the Chinese side doesn't want out there. I sound suspicious, but this has been going on for 15 years. And last time they thought they had a cooperation agreement in 2016 and the U.S. had to pull out because they weren't getting the cooperation. This time we might find a different form of non-cooperation. But at the end of the day, that will be up to the PCOB to decide whether they're getting what they want or not. If your worst suspicions are confirmed, um, this doesn't work out to the satisfaction of both sides. How messy could it be for the companies themselves and for their investors? Well, this is an iterative process. I know Pete's got thoughts on this too. But what we need is to avoid being delisted, which could happen from 2024 under current rules. You need to be able to look at the audit papers for a few years, or you need to have free access. So say we got the audit papers this year, but next year Beijing and Washington fall out further and Beijing withdraws cooperation. Then the clock starts ticking again on that three-year process in theory. So this has to be a continuous, ongoing process that becomes widely accepted to completely remove that risk. We should keep in mind that, yeah, the question of how transparent Beijing is going to be, I mean, there's, there's two sides of this. One is, you know, what do Chinese regulators consider sensitive? China's definition of, of national security is very broad. And in some cases, you know, this is also a state that tends to reflexively protect the economic interests of its own companies, no matter what they do. 
So one argument is that like basically the Chinese, keeping in mind that the CSRC, the stop securities regulator, is very reform minded, is very much wants to maintain access to overseas hard currency markets. These are the reformers. These are not the guys who are trying to block access to New York. But along with the CSRC, you also have like the cybersecurity regulator. You've got the Development Reform Commission, the Economic Planner. You've got the Ministry of Commerce. All these, all these regulators are kind of like have their, their claws into what, how Chinese companies behave. So like, will the system actually be able to relax and only look at elements of genuine national security, like defense secrets or, or financial information that's sensitive, and not just kind of like reflexively try to redact everything, which would blow up the deal? I mean, China has no reason to protect fraudulent companies or, you know, there's a lot of companies here that, that you know, I mean, you have you have like Luckin Coffee got delisted, right? And uh, that's a coffee maker. There's nothing strategic about it, right? I mean, China has no reason not to cooperate with companies like that. So it's possible that there will be some sort of genuine accord and like some companies will stay on the boards and the more sensitive ones, which are already delisting, these state-owned companies are already leaving of their own accord, will leave. But we just don't know, you know, whether that plus the American regulators, you know, attitudes will combine to allow most of these companies to stay in New York or actually a very, very small remnant of companies that nobody cares about. Okay, well, my takeaway is that you're probably going to squeeze a few more columns out on this before the story is done. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, Katrina. Thanks, Katrina. A fight has broken out among COVID-19 vaccine makers. Here to talk to me about it is Rob Siren, who's in New York. Hi, Rob. Hi, Amy. So, Rob, tell us about this. I mean, we all obviously, you know, many people were encouraged to get COVID-19 vaccines during the pandemic. It was a big rush of everyone, you know, trying to get the technology, all of the different things. There was mRNA, which was, you know, this revolutionary pioneering technology that was used in the vaccines. And the two vaccine makers who used this technology, Moderna and Pfizer, appear to now be sort of in a bit of a conflict about who owns what. Is that is that right? Yeah, exactly. You know, if you think about it this way, there was such a rush. Everyone was just concentrating on, okay, we need to get vaccines, multiple vaccines on target, and who knows what's going to succeed. Um, this is a worldwide emergency. Let's do it as fast as we can. That's what companies operated on. They all kind of, like Moderna, for instance, what they did is they said, okay, we're not going to enforce our intellectual property up in, you know, during the face of the pandemic. Companies like J&J said, we're not going to make profit during the pandemic. And now that's winding down and now they're reverting to being, you know, profit making entities and <laughs> they're seeking a return. The interesting thing about this is that mRNA vaccines, they're new. They're also like, if you think about them, they're kind of packages of technologies, not just one thing. There are lots of new things going into it. Like, for instance, mRNA is broken down very quickly in the body. So what they do is they put a little lipid layer, fat layer around it, and that prevents it from breaking down very quickly. That layer is lots of companies worked on it. And so there's a fight over all these companies that had played a part in developing these vaccines. Now they all want a share of the profits. They're all saying, okay, well, you know, I obviously this vaccine wouldn't work without this lipid layer. You know, I, we're responsible for that. So we get some of the share. The other companies saying, well, we developed the mRNA. That's the important part. So we that's more important. And the other thing to keep in mind is that no one wants to kill the golden goose. It's very difficult to get a drug approved. These things are gigantic money makers. And so what everyone's trying to do is they're trying to get a, you know, a couple of feathers off the goose rather than killing the goose. Last week, what happened was Moderna decided to actually file suit. They said Pfizer and their German partner BioNTech used some of our technology in developing their vaccine. And so we want 
you know, they haven't said what they're seeking. They're not seeking to withdraw the, the Pfizer's vaccine from the market. So it's obviously they're seeking some financial arrangement. And the court will have to look at that. Again, this is a very complicated situation because multiple companies are also suing Moderna. They're saying Moderna uses our technology. We're not seeking to withdraw Moderna's vaccine from the market either, but we're seeking some sort of royalties or something. I mean, so I think it's interesting what you're saying, sort of the softly, softly approach, because we saw obviously quite a turn in the way pharmaceutical companies behave during the pandemic, right? Like, as you said, the profit side of them. Now, although Pfizer and Moderna certainly were making profit, it seemed less about that to many of the vaccine makers, which is like, get these things out as fast as possible, remove these lockdowns, etc. But the money that's involved in this, I mean, what kind of revenue is Pfizer imagining it's going to get over the next couple of years from this well, vaccine? It, it changes a lot over time. This year, Pfizer's sales should be around $30 billion. And if you think the margins on these companies are, the margins on vaccines are very high, you know, they're making a lot of profit on these things. However, that should decline pretty rapidly in future years, just because everyone's been vaccinated. The question is how many, how often will people need to get boosters? Probably what's going to happen is it'll probably just be old people and immune compromised people. So, you know, sales should fall to, you know, I've seen estimates 10 billion, I, I'm, I'm guessing a bit less annually. So it, it will fall quite a bit. One interesting wrinkle is that Moderna is saying they're not seeking any damages for sales before, I believe it's March. That's most of sales because, you know, that's when everyone is getting vaccinated. So it's, it's more about future sales and estimates I've seen say, you know, Pfizer may sell perhaps $10 billion a year of vaccines in the next few years. So that's, you know, it's still a substantial number, but it's not as much as it would have been if they had gone back, you know, since the start of the pandemic. Interesting as well in your piece, Rob, you kind of talk about that, you know, Moderna for Moderna, mRNA is really like what they are. It's what they see in the future. Is this sort of them putting their mark on that? Like this is a very public legal battle now with Pfizer. And, you know, this is this is a, is this them kind of putting their mark on the technology and saying it's theirs? Exactly. Yeah, we've seen this before when Genentech, which became part of Roche eventually, when they Basically, they popularized and did a lot of the initial work on antibodies, MEVs. There was lots of fights over who was responsible for the IP. And one of the patents that Genentech and Roche eventually you know, held up in court, I think it's called the Kabili patent, that ended up being a lot of drug makers paid um, Roche every year and uh, the co-developer of the patent to use the technology. They paid, a, like I think it was about 3 to 5% annually. It worked out to about a billion dollars a year in royalties every year. And that was a much smaller biotech industry. It appears that mRNA is going to be as consequential as uh, molecular antibodies were. Uh, and so what that means is that, you know, it, it could be very possible that instead of a billion dollars a year, you know, if, if the court decides that, um, uh, you know, Moderna is is kind of the founding company or one of the companies most responsible for this. You could see, you know, a similar sort of thing play out where they get three to five percent on all these different drugs or all these different vaccines that rivals are developing. That could mean, you know, maybe ten billion dollars a year or something in, in profits, which is quite a bit. The other thing it does is it also it may make it harder for other companies, depending on how you know it plays out in courts for other companies to develop competing um, therapies in areas Moderna is acting in, because Moderna may have the IP and it could, it could potentially you know, keep people out 
more likely it's probably will just like I said, it, more likely what it's it's probably financially better if they just say, hey, you know, if your drugs concedes, you owe us, you owe us royalties on it. And I mean, Rob, the other thing that I thought was interesting about this is the sort of the shift then to, as you say, profitable entities. This is the focus now of these companies. They do have to sort of tread a bit of a fine line, though, don't they? Because during the pandemic, they sort of there was a bit of a cleansing of the reputation of pharma. Many of them, Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca, obviously were producing a vaccine at cost. So if you're having this very public battle that seems to be over mainly money, is that a good look? for the pharma industry. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. It makes them look a bit grubby, you know, to say, hey, we're saving the world. Everyone, you know, you're very popular when you're saving lives, but then when people kind of forget about it and they're just paying every time, you know, huge sums every time they go to the pharmacist, people forget that very quickly. The other thing to keep in mind is, you know, so the US, which is the biggest market for drugs in the world uh, by far, they passed a law recently, um, which makes it so that the, the government can negotiate prices on some drugs in the future. The industry has fought really, really hard against that for years because they, they view it as kind of a camel's nose under the tent. You know, the U.S. starts negotiating some prices on drugs. Eventually, we'll end up like Europe with drug prices that are a lot lower than they currently are. So the industry is worried about that. You know, if if and this all plays out in the court of public opinion, if if everyone's saying, hey, look at these drug makers, they're just grubby you know, money makers, that's all they care about, it becomes much easier to pass a law saying, okay, let's, you know, we're going to restrict drug pricing. If it's more like, hey, you know, these companies, they try to save people and they make a nice profit on the side, it's a lot, it's a lot easier for pharma companies to fight off uh, drug pricing caps. Well, a fascinating situation. Can't wait to read more from you, Rob. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. In just a few days, Britain will find out who its next prime minister is. The contest between Rishi Sunak, the former finance minister, and foreign secretary Liz Truss, which has been playing out over the summer, is coming to a head. Uh, and Liz Truss is the strong favourite with the bookmakers to succeed Boris Johnson as prime minister. Now, over the summer, these two candidates have been arguing about a number of things, but, but their main argument has been about cutting taxes, which I think has caught a lot of people by surprise. So I'm joined by George Hay and Amy Donlan, who've been looking at this question. And I guess I start by asking you, Amy, is this really a good idea for Britain to be talking about tax cuts at this particular moment? I think you 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 hit the nail on the head that I think people are quite maybe confused as to why they're talking about tax cuts, given the situation in the UK, which is that inflation is particular is hitting the UK particularly hard. Energy prices are you know there's there's basically a cap that that deals with energy prices that's forecast to basically treble. Um, and I think that what I think they what people thought the two potential candidates would be talking about would be that cost of living crisis and how they would kind of in a targeted way offer support to people who are hoping to heat their homes and buy food and, and all of the things that actually people in the UK are, are very concerned about uh, over the coming months. Yeah, there is also, George, though, I mean, the, the Conservative Party historically prided itself on being a sort of party of fiscal responsibility and sound money. So uh, I mean, I think Liz Truss, you, you, got, you two wrote a piece which was saying Liz, Liz Truss has a plan which would cost probably about £30 billion. Now, is that something that they're going to then cut spending to offset or how would that work? 
First of all, a uh, bit of throat clearing. Obviously, a lot of this is unclear, possibly even to Liz Truss. Um, but like the the interesting thing, I suppose, is that um, uh, according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies, who study these things very closely, there could be a, a certain amount of uh, headroom to cut taxes by £30 billion without having to um, cut spending by an equivalent, equivalent sum. The reason for that is this rather kind of confusing thing called unintended austerity, which the long and the short of it is that when you have rising prices in periods of inflation, um, it pushes up receipts from taxes on incomes and sales, while at the same time spending on public services like schools, which aren't directly linked to uh, inflation, they rise at a lower rate. Um, the, in, the, up, the, the long and the short of that is that they think um, it could boost tax revenues by um, £37 billion by 2024. So there is potentially a small degree of headroom to do this. The thing that they also flag and it pains to kind of point out is that even though certain, uh, even though you might have these tax, um, uh, this revenue um, headroom, you, the effects of inflation on other parts of government spending like social care and servicing is uh, and servicing state debt is immediate and definite, whereas the outlook for um, uh, revenues over the next five years is kind of anyone's guess because of all the all the uncertainty in the air at the moment. Right. So, but so, but so if I'm if I'm just getting this straight, then so so essentially what you're saying is because we have this very high inflation rate, you know, possibly double digits, banks forecasting 18, 20 percent inflation by the beginning of next year. Yeah. Automatically, the tax revenue you get from sales taxes and income taxes and various other things goes up with inflation. So. Yeah. But then and then there are other things that the government spends money on, as you say, like schools, which don't automatically go up with inflation. So so what so you get a sort of a, a, a weird like fiscal boost just from having that inflationary situation? Yes, exactly. But um, the point that the IFS is also keen to point out is that uh, not all public spending is on things like schools. Some of the public spending is inflation linked and on things like social care and debt servicing costs. And that that, you know, there's there's a hundred percent certainty that that's going to go up. Their kind of confidence on um, exactly what revenues are, are going to do in over the next three to four years is far less than the hundred percent. So that's kind of the problem, really, because if they're wrong about what uh, tax revenue, what kind of wider uh, receipts and tax revenue is going to um, do over the next uh, four to five years, then this fiscal space won't actually be there. And right. um, then you're then into the, a kind of more difficult situation. Then the then the debt goes up more than people expected, and the yes. debt and you, and you have to do spending cuts, okay. um, which uh, well, <laughs> which will be a really bad time to do that. So. Or borrow more. But it is sort of interesting that this debate seems to be taking place in a sort of parallel universe. Because to go back, Amy, to what you were talking about at the beginning, I mean, Britain has been confronted with this potentially very severe situation in the winter with people facing massive increases in their in their heating and and, and electricity bills. And, you know, the, the focus you would think of the government, of any incoming government, would be helping people with that. And there's some really big numbers flying around. I mean, I think, George, you wrote a piece about about a, a, a plan that was proposed by some of the power companies, which would involve spending a hundred billion pounds over a couple of years to uh, to help people out with their energy bills. Admittedly, with some sort of plan to then 
recoup that money from people over the next 10 years or something, but still potentially uh, a lot of spending. So, Amy, isn't that really that's sort of the, the big tsunami that's coming? I mean, we're talking about constructing sandcastles on the beach and sort of ignoring the, the wave that's on the way, aren't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think another concern is that there, you know, there could be a, a recession coming as well. And you have interest rates going up in the country, which means that people who are highly leveraged with mortgages, their their disposable income is going to be cut even further. Um, so absolutely, the big topic for, for most people at the moment is how they're going to pay their energy bill. And you can see that with a lot of the small businesses like bars saying that a very high percentage may actually have to close their doors over the next few months because they cannot make their energy bills. So to be talking about a tax cut, which is not targeted at people who really need it. I mean, this is basically income tax. And then you're also talking about a corporation tax cut. So very large companies would be would be benefiting from that. Yeah, I think this this seems like at the at the moment it, it seems odd. I think in the next few months it will seem absolutely crazy. Yeah, so, okay, so to sum this up, the candidates for the next prime minister has spent the summer having this argument in a sort of slightly in a parallel universe to, to everything that's going on. And I guess there may come a point where it would be a good idea to cut taxes or to increase spending, but that will be because the economic situation is a lot worse than it is at the moment. So, Amy and George, thank you very much. I'm sure that we will be talking about this a lot more once the new prime minister is unveiled. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lam in Toronto, Thomas Shum in Hong Kong, and Pranav Kiran in Bangalore. Subscribe to The Newsroom and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Cast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.